welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good morning, everyone. Welcome along to Gateway this morning on a very somber morning in our history in New Zealand. You know, when something as tragic as Friday happens close to home like this, it's incredibly difficult to know how to respond. You know, as we gather as a faith, faith community, I want to thank the people that have um, labored over what they've presented this morning. Um, I thought they did incredibly well, very, very sensitive, and, and that's not easily done in just a moment of time. And one of the things that um, I, I felt challenged by was, you know, I'm in the middle of a series on worship. Uh, what, what's appropriate? Should I continue? Should I change it? Should I bring something different? And as I thought a little bit about that I, I thought of Job, you know, and in the midst of the tragic circumstances that Job did not understand and um, wasn't partner to in terms of the spiritual forces that were operating in the background, he just saw the tragedy and it says that he bowed his head and he worshipped. And I think if I'd have been doing any other subject, I probably would have altered it, but um, it just seemed incredibly appropriate that the subject of worship is on the table and in the midst of circumstances that perhaps um, are incredibly confusing and for many people call into question either the existence of God or if he does exist, certainly his goodness. Um, In the midst of that confusion, uh, I think we as a faith community, while we may share in that confusion and even ask some of the same questions, we nonetheless, like Job, bow our heads and worship. So, um, you know, I said to someone this morning, in responding to a situation like this, sometimes you feel damned if you do and damned if you don't. Um, and, and I don't mean to appear insensitive um, to anybody who would think you just carried on your series. Um, it wasn't done without some thought and some deliberation, but I plan to do that. I think one of the things that um, these kinds of attacks and these kinds of groups that perpetrate the attacks hope to do is throw people off their axis throw people into incredible fear and confusion so that suddenly life um, it looks very different and, and feels very, very uncertain. And part of coping with that, I think, is um, the choice and challenge to, at least as sensitively as possible, continue life, okay? to continue gathering, to continue worship, to continue teaching. And um, I hope that's not insensitive, but that's what I plan to do this morning. So we've been doing a series on worship, and so far I've considered um, the person we worship, and we looked at um, the fact that God is good. Exodus 34, the self-revelation of God, his press release to the world, as it were, that he is good, that he's faithful. And uh, in moments like this, you have to reach out and take hold of those words. Enough said. We looked last week at the priority of worship, and this morning I want to talk to you about the pattern of worship. The idea that there might be a pattern or a protocol in our worship times doesn't always sit well with people. 
it doesn't necessarily sit well with people from our faith tradition, the Pentecostal tradition, because we were raised that, you know, as the Spirit moves, you do whatever is on your heart to do, and um, whatever you feel the Spirit inspiring you to do in the moment, you do. And uh, we have garnered over the years a reputation, something of a reputation for doing rather strange things. You've heard the talk of Pentecostal swinging from the chandeliers and, and uh, you know, holy rolling and all sorts of things. And we have, with good reason, garnered a reputation for being somewhat uh, spontaneous and at times somewhat weird. A protocol, it's, it's mostly you I'm talking about, you realize I know. Protocol and pattern isn't a word that we postmoderns like much either. It sounds way too much like somebody trying to control us. And uh, we postmoderns like to have options that we can choose from, depending again how we subjectively feel in the moment. I recall one radio preacher who used to begin his broadcasts with the words, let us pray, each in his own words and each in his own way. And it's kind of very democratic, very individualistic, very postmodern, and I would want to add, and very wrong. Uh, let, me, let me try and explain. You do have a choice in terms of what God you might choose to worship, whether that would be Jesus, Allah, Krishna, or any number of other choices that you might have available to you. Once, however, you have chosen what God you will worship, there is nearly always a pattern or a protocol that you must adhere to. And it is that way with Yahweh. The Old Testament protocol surrounding worship is very prescribed and at places very complicated. When you read, for example, the book of Leviticus, it's a priestly manual that outlines people's approach to God in worship, and in places it's dense and complex. And you might know that when people violated that protocol, they did so at their own peril. In Leviticus chapter 10, we have a story of two priests, Nadab and his brother Abayu, and they approached God with what was called strange fire, fire that didn't come from the prescribed place. They assumed that God wouldn't mind. It was just a mere, you know, a slight infraction of the rules, and, and you know, God knew their heart and knew that they were sincere, and they got it terribly wrong, and they paid for that with their lives. In the Old Testament, there was a very definite pattern to people's worship. There was a prescribed place. You weren't able just to sacrifice wherever you felt. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 in the Living Bible says, you are not to sacrifice your burnt offerings just anywhere. You may only do so in the place the Lord will choose. He will pick a place in the territory allotted to one of the tribes. Only there may you offer your sacrifices and bring your offerings. So there was a prescribed place. There were prescribed times. There was the holy days, the Sabbaths, the feasts three times a year. So people came at prescribed times. There were prescribed offerings. There were burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, trespass offerings, each with their own protocol surrounding them. And then, of course, there were the priests who mediated the sacrifices that the people bought in very, very prescribed ways. So it was, it was very definitely prescribed. There was a protocol. There was a pattern. It most certainly was not each in his own words and each in his own ways. Now, you might say to me, well, Don, that was the Old Testament. For goodness sake, we're in the New Testament. 
And yes, we are, and I acknowledge in some respects it is very, very different. For example, there is no longer a specific place designated for worship. You might, you might remember the conversation that Jesus had in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, and she's basically asking, where's the place? Is it on this mountain or that mountain? And Jesus responds, it's neither here nor there. It's no longer about geography, he says. Now it's about a certain kind of people. It's the people that will worship God in spirit and in truth. So there's no longer a prescribed piece of geography. No longer do we have prescribed feast days and holy days in the way that the Old Testament saints did. The book of Colossians says, so don't let anyone criticize you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating Jewish holidays and feasts or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these were only temporary rules that ended when Christ came. They were only shadows of the real thing of Christ himself. So those kind of prescribed times don't apply any longer. Our worship is no longer mediated by a class of priests since the Bible says as believers we have become a community of priests. And of course we no longer have to bring animals to sacrifice for sins, Christ's sacrifice, and his blood were sufficient. And the book of Hebrews, for example, especially deals with the wonderful truth that animal sacrifices are no longer required. So there are very great and very distinct differences between Old Testament and New Testament. However, I would want to say, don't imagine that we are now free from any kind of pattern or protocol, and that now whatever we want and whatever we subjectively feel becomes the arbitrator for what is acceptable worship. I think the matter of worship is far too important to be left up to our subjective whim. There is still a pattern and a protocol for people bringing worship. Obviously, like the worshipers of the Old Testament, we approach on the basis of blood. Now, the blood has changed. It's no longer animal's blood, but as I said before, it is the blood of the eternal Son of God. So our approach is still on the basis of blood, and like saints of old, we are told not to come empty-handed. We, too, bring sacrifices. Now, they are distinctly different from the old agreement, but we still come with something in our hands. We bring sacrifices. Let me read you a couple of scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. So we, we are called to bring some sacrifices. They are distinguished from the Old Testament as being spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There is something about your bodily presence and what you do with that bodily presence in his presence that becomes or has the potential to be a, an acceptable and living sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, therefore by him let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So although we're under a different, different covenant, there remains an established pattern to worshiping God. It is not simply a subjective free-for-all. Now, what we do as we gather at Gateway is an attempt to respond to what we understand that pattern to look like. The protocol, as we understand it to be laid out in the scriptures, is, is how we've sought to structure our services. So if you are new to Gateway, one of the things that you would notice first of all, and people often comment on it being new, they say is, my goodness, you sing a lot. 
So when we come, we understand that part of our approach is to be musical. We come with song. There is more than 300 injunctions scattered throughout the scripture that tell us to come singing to the Lord. Psalm 100 verse two says, come before him with joyful songs. Psalm 95 verse two, let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. In Psalm 47, verse six and seven, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. You get the idea that you're supposed to sing praises? For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises, and then it adds with understanding. And I think that's a crucial phrase that could be attached to all the things that we do as we come. Do it, and do it with understanding. Understand why you do what you do. You know, singing traditionally has been, a, has been one of Christianity's secret weapons. Whether it was the early martyrs in the Colosseum facing the animals gathered together in song, or whether it was Corrie ten Boom in solitary confinement who started every day by singing, stand up, stand up for Jesus. We understand there is something about song that pulls us together as a community, unifies our hearts, gives us a common response, builds courage into the lives of people as they offer that worship in song. Every revival the world has known has been marked and accompanied by singing. From Martin Luther to the Wesleys, from the Salvation Army under General Booth to the Welsh Revival to the Charismatic Revival here in New Zealand, singing has played a vital part. And without wanting to preach a sermon on song, and I've done this before, I, I would like just to give you a couple of bullet points as to um, perhaps a point of further study for you. But the Bible tells us to sing in certain circumstances. When you're facing seasons of battle, song is an incredibly powerful instrument of spiritual warfare. I'm sure you, many of you are familiar with that passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, where a great army came against Judah. King Jehoshaphat called the people to prayer and fasting. Somebody says, God is gonna win this battle, and so they send out the singers. And, and uh, the Bible tells us in verse 22 of that chapter, as they began to sing and praise, praise, the Lord set ambushments against their enemies. There is something in the midst of battle that song brings to the table as we, we worship. Sing in times of bondage, as difficult as that is. In Acts chapter 16, verse 25, Paul and Silas are in prison, it says, and they're singing and praying. The foundations of the prison were shaken, the doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. There is something about song that has the capacity to break chains, open doors, and set people free. In times of barrenness, when you feel like, you know, the promise that God has given you is a million miles away and all you have in your hands is emptiness, the Bible says sing. Isaiah 54, verse one, sing, barren woman. Burst into song. More are the children of the desolate woman than, those that, than, than that of her who has a husband. There is something about the power of song. And we're called to come into his presence with singing. So yes, here at Gateway, we do sing a lot. My, my prayer and my hope is that into these situations, we sing with understanding. Even the tragic circumstances that we face as a nation, you know, as we sing, particularly perhaps that last song, let there be peace in our land, there's something that rises in your heart, that song calls forth that mere words do not. There is power in singing, and we're told to come with song. 
You might say, well, Don, I notice that all the scriptures you quote from are from the Old Testament. Well, apart from the fact that the Old Testament was the New Testament church's scriptures, you can turn to other passages that they later wrote that became our New Testament that essentially say exactly the same thing. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, be filled instead with the Holy Spirit and controlled by him. Talk with each other much about the Lord, quoting psalms and hymns and singing sacred songs and making music in your heart to the Lord. Being filled with the Spirit is equated with song. And then in Colossians, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Or the the message translation says, let the word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house, give it plenty of room in your lives, instruct and direct one another using good common sense and sing. Sing your hearts out to God. Filled with the Spirit, sing. The word of God dwelling richly in you, sing. So you can get why Psalm 47 says, sing praises, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises, and sing them with understanding. We're told to sing. Another thing you'll notice if you come to Gateway is you'll see people around you regularly lifting their hands. You know, the worship we are instructed to bring is more than just a cerebral exercise. It's more than just worshipful thoughts. It's a worshipful posture. Our body is and is always meant to be an outward expression or a manifestation of what's transpiring within us. You know, the whole pseudoscience of body language has grown up around that idea. You can tell what's going on in people by what they do with their body. So when we're angry, we might clench our fists. When we're anxious, we might wring our hands. When we're excited, we might clap. When we're in despair, we might put our hands over our face. What's going on on the inside manifests itself through the body. Princeton theologian Diogenes Allen put it this way. He said, the body is the soul and its outward manifestation. The body is the outside of the soul. I I think many other cultures, Eastern cultures particularly, express this perhaps better than we do. We, at least those of us who are of British stock anyway, have largely been socialized to refrain from exuberant public uh, expression. We, we play our emotions close to our chests. But I want to tell you that's not how most cultures function, and I don't think it's the biblical pattern. Worship is actually meant to be expressed. Remember, we define worship as love responding to love. And we're all aware of how incredibly inappropriate it is if someone close to us and dear to us express their love to us by saying, I love you, and you just stand there passively and say nothing. I, I, when I was writing this, I thought of a scene way back in uh, Star Wars, the first trilogy. I don't, you know, there's been endless stories. It's like the never-ending story. I can't even keep up with it now. But the first three I, I enjoyed, and I think it was in Empire Strikes Back. You may remember the scene. Han Solo has been captured, and he's about to be taken off. And just before he disappears into this ice chamber to be frozen solid, Princess Leia reaches down and says, I love you. And as he's disappearing into the ice chamber, Harrison Ford responds by saying, I know. (laughs) And the whole theater did what you just did. It's like, oh, that is so inappropriate, you goose. You're supposed to say, I love you. However, it would have been even worse if he had said nothing, perhaps. Maybe he should have just kept his mouth closed. I don't know, but you know, I I suspect our passivity in worship registers somehow like that in heaven when God says, I love you, and we do nothing. Or perhaps we say, I know, 
when what we're supposed to say in worship is, I love you too. There is something about posture that says that. You know, the book of Lamentations says, let us lift up our hands, uh, sorry, our heart with our hands. Some translation says, let us lift up our heart and our hands. There is an expression of the heart reaching out that has to be manifest through the body. And every culture knows that, perhaps with the exception of the West. In Psalm 143, verse 6, it says, I spread out my hands to you. That's the outward manifestation because it says in verse 8, for I lift up my soul to you. The soul reaching out causes the hands to reach out. It's normal. And you say, Don, again, you're quoting from the Old Testament. And again, I would say to you, the Old Testament was the New Testament scriptures. However, since you're being really contrary this morning, look at a New Testament scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 says, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. Without wrath, by the way, might address those thoughts that we have of, don't you tell me what to do. It's just a matter of mind control. Don't you tell me I have to lift up my hands. Without doubting might address those thoughts that, but does it really matter? I mean, does he care? Lift up your holy hands, the Bible says, without wrath or doubting. So we sing, we lift up our hands. You'll notice that at times we clap. Now, I know that in many circles, clapping has really just been reduced to keeping the beat, or or perhaps it's an expression of joy. You know, we've got the reputation of being happy clappy, as they say. And it can be just those things, but it needs to be done with understanding. And when it's done with understanding, it can be much, much more than that. Psalm 147 says, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. You know, in the Hebrew Bible, there are four words that are translated by our one English word, clap. And they interestingly fall into two groups of two, two broad ideas in this, uh, this notion of the clapping of hands. In the first group, there are words taka and maka. And they convey the idea of delight, of anticipation, of excitement, of appreciation, in much the same way as you tell children you've got a gift for them and they all, that, those two Hebrew words convey that idea. You know, in Psalm 98 verse eight, it says the floods clap their hands and in Isaiah 55 it says the trees clap their hands. And the idea is that creation, as J.B. Phillips says in Romans chapter eight, is standing on tiptoes, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God, waiting to be renewed as the promise of God has, you know, in the scriptures tells us well, this, this will occur. And there is a sense of excitement and delight and, and the clapping of hands sometimes in the midst of a worship setting is just simply that. It's applause, it's, it's appreciation, it's excitement, it's delight. The second groups of, of words, two words, safak and naka, they convey a very, very different idea. We don't really have this concept in the West, as, at least as far as I know, uh, but in Eastern lands, it's customary to express derision, scorn, or contempt by the clapping of hands. The only thing that I could think of that even goes closely to resembling this in a Western setting is those of you who play cricket, and, um, and if you're an opening batsman, as I was, and you're scoring very, very slowly, and people are getting bored on the sideline, they start doing this. (laughs) 
And if you've been to a cricket match, you know slow hand clapping is not an appreciation of what's going on out in the middle. It's like, get a move on. We'll pick up sides and play a game on the bank if you don't do something a bit more exciting than this. And it's not much fun when you're out there batting and people start doing that. You know they're expressing anything but delight and anticipation. In eastern lands, that transpires. Lamentations, chapter 2, verse 15, talking about Jerusalem that had been desolated by judgment, and it says, all who pass by clap their hands at you, they hiss and shake their heads. This is a way of expressing derision. Got what you deserved, is what they are saying. In Job 27, verse 23, men shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss him out of his place. They're talking about a person being thrown down from a place of authority, and they will clap their hands and hiss at him. You know, I wonder that this part of the clapping of the hands might be what David was referring to in Psalm 144 when he said, he teaches my hands to war. And there are times, I think, when we are clapping when it is much more than simply we appreciate what you've done, God. And I wonder that there isn't spiritual shockwaves sent out as we're doing that, which cause somebody to be hissed out of their place. Over the years, as we've talked about spiritual warfare, you know, again, in Pentecostal circles particularly, people do crazy things, you know, they do really strange and weird things in the name of spiritual warfare. And, uh, you know, in some instances, maybe the Holy Spirit does lead, but you do sometimes wonder when you see what goes on. For me, always the most powerful instrument of spiritual warfare has been worship. That as we worship, perhaps as we express our appreciation either by the lifting of the hands or the clapping of them, that something is transpiring where uh, principalities and powers are being served notice and are being hissed out of their place, hissed and clapped out of their place. So, how do I know when I'm clapping? What am I? Do- what am I doing? You know, how, how do I know whether I'm expressing praise or or doing spiritual warfare? And sometimes it's a bit like speaking in tongues. You know, um, you don't always know what you're saying, but oftentimes you know exactly who you're saying it to, because there are times when you know it's adoration. You t- there are times when you know it, there is something being addressed beyond simple adoration and worship. That it's spiritual warfare. Maybe it's like that. Maybe actually it's two sides of one coin. That as you're doing this to that side, you're doing. To that side. Whatever you do, when we come to a time that elicits applause, do it with understanding. Don't simply go, <sighs> you know, a bit like Wimbledon where they serve cucumber sandwiches and people give polite applause. We're, we're in something much more serious than that. You can have your cucumber sandwiches later and if you want to do polite applause, go to the cricket. But here, there is something transpiring. We do it with understanding. We do it with exuberance, okay? Um, some, some of you might remember this. Many, many years ago, we had, uh, we had a, a, a visiting preacher who brought his worship team, and he came and kind of led us in worship, and he wasn't at all used to um, leading gateway in worship, and at that point in time, he, he led a worship time, and people burst into applause, and he came to us after and says, don't applaud me. You know, this is not about us, and I'm on the front row. I said, we didn't, and it's not. You know, it's not just expressing appreciation for music well played. This is way more than that. 
Another thing we do is we encourage people to bring verbal praise. Um, thank, I said this last week, but thankfulness and thankfulness are not the same thing. When you give something to your children or grandchildren, and, and uh, you know, as I said last week, sometimes I'll hand the grandkids something and they'll, you know, they're distracted, they'll go to take it, you know, whether it's a glass of fizzy or something, not fizzy, I don't give them fizzy, you know, I'm a, <laughs> don't you dare tell Janae, all right? I gave them a spider one time, which is ice cream with Coke, and they're not allowed Coke. And you know, they said, oh, Papa gave us Coke, and Janae's after me. And I said, oh, there's more ice cream than Coke. <laughs> but, I, but when they reach out to take it, if they don't say the magic words, they do not get it. And I, there have been times where we've had the tug of war, you know. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you, Papa. Thankfulness and thankfulness are not the same thing. You say, well, I know that, and God knows that, and he knows what's going on in my heart. Well, you know, the word says, bring your verbal praise. You say, where does it say that? You show me that. Okay. Hosea chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you. In this case, they are words of repentance, but they are words you don't just bring repenting thoughts. You bring with you words. And Hebrews 13, 15, which most theologians recognize as an echo of, uh, of Hosea 14, say, therefore by him let us offer continually, or let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, not the fruit of our cerebral thoughts, but the fruit of our lips, the giving of thanks in his name. Bring with you words. There are places in a service where you will be invited to speak your words. And can I, can I just simply say, for you to stand there passively, hands in pockets, at that point in time, is kind of Princess Leia-like, I love you, and you don't respond. There's something incredibly inadequate about that. You say, but Don, you know, I'm just not that kind of personality and I feel really uncomfortable speaking out loud. Well, without wanting to put too fine a point on it, perhaps that's why it's called a sacrifice. Could it be? You know, in the Old Testament sacrifice, something usually died. In the New Testament sacrifice, it's not an animal that dies. Often it's our pride. It's our reputation. It's our need to be and to look cool, to be considered sophisticated and progressive. David famously observed that he would not offer the Lord that which cost him nothing. And sometimes, for those of us who are more introverted, speaking out loud, out loud might be very, very difficult. But we might do well to learn from this man who was the ultimate worshiper. Worship is, is at times costly. You remember Michael David's wife berating him for, for his lack of dignity in worship, and she said something to the effect that you're the king. You should be more aware of your place and your status and behave in a manner that's in keeping with it. Tone your enthusiasm down. And uh, David refused, and as a result of that advice, the Bible says Michael remained barren. Now, we aren't told whether that barrenness was the direct result of God's judgment on her or whether David was so miffed by her that he refused to have anything further to do with her, but the end result was the same. She was barren. And I want to say to you, barrenness is a really high price to pay for your dignity. We want to be fruitful. We want to be fruitful in our lives, personally, um, professionally, in our families. We long for the fruit of God. And sometimes 
our adherence to cultural norms, to be cool, to be, to be sophisticated, to be progressive, I think, stands in the way of our fruitfulness. You know, when it comes to expressive worship, some people are just too cool for school. But the problem with being too cool ends up, you end up freezing outside of the presence of God. For some, their attitude toward God seems to be, you'll have to settle with you know, what I deem to be appropriate, God. You're really quite lucky that I'm here at all. To ask me to be anything other than passively present is a little more than I, the quintessential postmodern, am prepared to offer. It's all, you know, it's, it's all I've got. It's all I'll bring, and you have to be satisfied with that. It's, it's this or nothing. You choose God. You know what? Quite frankly, I'm afraid he might. And he might consider that kind of offering, or in this case, a lack of it, as strange fire. And I'm not saying, you know, please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying unless you lift your hands, speak and clap and sing out loud, God might strike you dead. But it might well be that the key to your fruitfulness is in coming according to a pattern, according to a protocol. So as I understand the scriptures, the pattern is come, singing, come, lifting your hands, come and clap and do it with understanding and at times speak, at times even shouting or leaping. Worship is responding, is love responding to love. And, um, and to simply stand there, Hans Solo-like, I, I think is completely inappropriate. When you, when you get a revelation of the person we worship, you do as Moses did. You fall to the ground and you worship. When you get a revelation of who God is like, like Job, in the midst of unbelievably confusing circumstances that sometimes would make you question the goodness of God, nevertheless, like Job said, I, I, though you slay me, I will trust you, and you bow your head and you worship. And in the midst of the circumstances that we face in our nation, I think the best spiritual warfare we can do, I think the best response that we might have is we say, God, you are good, and we worship you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.